My word for the day has been interesting. So it has been very interesting to know that I had already prepared in my heart this message for the night before I ever knew what the theme of the music was going to be this evening. I marvel how God puts things together. So therefore, if you have your Bibles, let's everybody stand and we'll turn to two different places. The first place will be the second chapter of Philippians, and then the second place will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. First of all, Philippians 2, then we'll quickly go from Philippians 2 to chapter 27 of Matthew. And so kind of to maintain congruity, if you could, let's go ahead and maybe mark uh, in your Bible with uh, Sunday's bulletin or your forefinger, uh, chapter 27 of Matthew, and we'll go to Philippians 2 first, and then we'll quickly go from Philippians 2 to Matthew 27. Philippians 2, verse number 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matthew 27 now, verse number 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is the say, a place of a skull. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Let's remain standing. We'll have a word of prayer and then please be seated. Lord, as we visit this place, we pray that we might remember again what thou didst for us at this place. And then I pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit unction the function because truly all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So meet with us on this night. Help us to bring glory and honor to that name that as we read, is above every name. And Father, I pray if there one is in our midst that has not yet bowed the knee in heart, calling upon the Lord for salvation, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that on this night they will make sure their salvation. And for those of us that are saved, I pray that we might remember, O oh Lord, what you did for us, so that we might in turn be motivated to live for thee, we pray that you would bind the hands of Satan and release the Spirit to do his work. We thank you for the cross, the precious blood you shed, the burial and the resurrection that we celebrate, not just on Easter, but in every day of our lives. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us now to love thee more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. And sitting down, they watched him there. This evening, I want to speak to you on the thought, watching Jesus die. We saw in the scripture that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The reason was not robbery because he was equal with God. Jesus Christ did not begin his life in the manger of Bethlehem. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. That's why they took up stones to stone him. The Bible says in John 1 and verse 1 and following, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, <clears throat> and the Word was God. The same is the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Colossians 1 says he is before all things and by him all things consist, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were made by him and for him. As my old friend Dr. Lee used to say, who was it that put the sun up yonder in the tabernacle of the heavens? Who was it that put the moon shining like a yellow jonquil in full bloom? Who was it that carved out a place for the seas, roped them off with sand and filled them up with water? And who was it that put the beautiful green grass upon this planet like green carpet and tacked it down with yellow daffodils? Who was it that made man from the very dirt of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life? It was Jesus. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And this great Lord God came from the glory of heaven to the gory earth, from the hallelujahs of heaven to the hisses of earth, from the joys of heaven to the jeers of earth, from the comforts of heaven to the curses of earth, heaven's bread for earth's hunger, heaven's joy for earth's sorrow. He left the dominion of glory, being waited upon by tens and thousands of angels, leaving the great diadem and splendor of his heavenly home, born of the Virgin Mary, reared in the carpenter's home, living the most humble life in the hillbilly area of Israel, in the northern district, in Galilee, in Nazareth. This was his upbringing. Never ventured more than 100 miles for his job, his great goal in this life of his, 33 and a half years, was to bring him to this focal point that we read about just a moment ago, to that hill that bore the face of a skull, Golgotha, Calvary. This is why he came. He set his face, to use the words of the prophet, like a flint toward Jerusalem. All through his ministry, he prophesied that this was the reason that he came, and that is to come to this cross, to be crucified, to be raised again. When he talked about following him, as a matter of fact, he repeatedly used the analogy of take up your cross and follow me. The cross at this time was the most popular form of execution. It was not a piece of jewelry that was worn around someone's neck. Can you imagine how ludicrous it would be for someone to have a gold-plated hypodermic needle representing lethal injection worn as jewelry? For someone to have a ring that bore the image of an electric chair? Or maybe some little cufflinks that were bore the image of gas chambers where people lost their lives in capital punishment. You see, the cross was not something romantic, it was not something beautiful, it was something of scorn and, as we heard sung tonight, of great shame. Not only a way to be executed, but the most despicable way to be executed, the most embarrassing way to be executed, the most painful way to be executed. And yet that's why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as was told to me when I was a little boy, Johnny, did you know that God so loved you? How much does he love us? This much and stretched out his hands and died for us. I was disenchanted uh, in my youth from time to time with Christendom, especially my own fundamentalist sector. I was very disappointed with people that I looked up to very highly, even those within our own local church. And I remember being so disgusted with the man that was directing our youth because I felt like he was very hypocritical And I remember my mother said to me something very simple, but it did 
stir my heart. She said, you know, Johnny, Johnny boy, if you keep looking at men, they'll let you down. You got to look at Jesus. He will never let you down. And so I, I, I learned that that was part of the devil's plan to get our mind off the main thing. What is the old saying? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it was so easy to look at those that were supposed to be followers of Christ. Not saying that those who follow Christ in the wrong kind of way with harboring sin and so on are not causing damage to the body of Christ. And indeed they are, but I would challenge every one of you tonight just to join me again and focus in on Jesus. Now for about a half a century of my life, my main focus, and I've loved to study the Word of God and I love to read, but my main study and my main projection of thought processing for about 50 years now has been on the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the passion, especially His death on the cross. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, and no one that makes me want to live for the Lord any more than when I consider what He did for me and what he did for you. I would ask you to consider the prayer before the cross, the pain that he endured on the cross, and the power beyond the cross. I bring your attention, first of all, the prayer before the cross. If we're really going to see the effect of Calvary, we need to see what happened on that evening of Gethsemane on the night before he died. As his disciples came with him, they had sat at the first induction of the table of our Lord, where our Lord himself took the form of a servant and washed the dirty feet of men. And then he broke the bread, explaining that this is his body broken for us. And the cup, which represents his blood shed for us. And then afterwards they sung a hymn. And again, I cannot help but thank the Lord for the good music that reminds us that in the Lord's economy, there's always music, even between the table of our Lord and his death on the cross. They take out time to sing a hymn, the Bible says. And then he crosses Kidron's brook, now so stained with the blood of the Passover lambs, that even the brook itself, as he crosses over Kidron's brook to go to Gethsemane, is stained with blood. It is estimated at the time of Jesus' death that there were 275,000 lambs that were slain. So many lambs and so much blood that Kidron was stained red. 275,000. So our Lord... All of the disciples were from the northern district except for one, and that was Judas Iscariot, who was from Judea. So the Lord, with his disciples from the northern district, celebrated the Passover on the night before the actual Passover. So that the Passover lamb would die on the actual day of the Passover. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it? So the Lord crosses Kidron, Kidron's brook, now stained red with the blood of the lambs. And he comes in the Gethsemane. And we see things like the word amazed. Someone said, I was reading after one scholar who said, that is synonymous with being in shock and all. Our Lord was filled with amazement. The Bible says that as he came in the Gethsemane, that great heaviness came upon him. As though he was coming to an understanding that he had not heretofore accepted or understood. Now, he is God, you see. And he could at any time pull back all of the attributes of God at his beckoning. But you see, he laid aside so much of his glory. For instance, he chose to learn the will of God like a man. But he could not resist the will of God because he was God. 
It's a great conundrum, but a fact. Maybe a paradox, but not a contradiction. So our Lord, the Bible says, begins to be very heavy. The Bible says he's amazed and he's in shock and awe as he begins to pray. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he prayed that not once, but three different times. A season of this continuing praying. It's such an important event that lethargy has slipped in on the disciples and now they themselves are falling asleep as our Lord is travailing in prayer. Luke says that it was at this juxtaposition with destiny that he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Medical science will tell you that your sweat comes from your bloodstream and under great stress and duress, people have been known to have blood come out of the pores of their skin. At this time, Jesus is literally sweating his own blood even in the garden. What was he talking about? Let this cup pass for me. In the Psalms, it talks about the cup, the dregs, the wickedness of the earth. The prophets talk about the cup of God's fury, the cup of God's wrath. 64 years later, John, by holy inspiration, speaks in the Revelation, chapter 11, believe verse 14. He speaks of the cup of God's indignation. And I believe with all my heart that John, as he, guided by the Holy Spirit, wrote those words, was reflecting back to the prayer of our Lord who said, let this cup pass from me. So as you see the word cup mentioned in the Bible, you see the cup of the dregs of the wickedness of the earth in the Psalms. In the prophets, the cup of God's fury, the cup of God's wrath, or as John says, the cup of God's indignation. We know that what Jesus was experiencing was something that seemed to be the most distasteful the most sad and the most horrendous thing he had up to this date ever faced. Let this cup pass for me. Now, some have said that they believed that the Lord was actually afraid at this time. I believe Bill O'Reilly uh, in one of his books uh, about that he wrote about the death of our Lord uh, said that the Lord, like any other man, was becoming afraid. But I certainly will not let uh, Bill O'Reilly be my theology professor. There was nothing the Lord Jesus was being afraid of. That is, what man can do to him. He had no fear of man at all. But the fear of God is another thing. That which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, that's another thing. He was not trying to get away from the cross. He prophesied all throughout his ministry. Matter of fact, at one point, Peter looked at him trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, knowing it was a dangerous place. And Jesus looks right at Peter and says, get thee behind me. And you remember when he arose up from that prayer, telling the disciples to sleep on, and then here they finally come with shackles to take up and bind the hands that made the bands, and Orion and Pleiades, with torches that take away the light of the world. He says to Peter, the cup, the cup which my Father hath given me Shall I not drink it? The cup of the dregs of the wickedness of the earth, the cup of the wrath, the cup of the fury, the cup of God's indignation. What 
was he specifically talking about? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But now he was determined to accept what the Father was pressing to him, and that is this cup, this cup, when they finally come to take Jesus away, Jesus asked, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And the Lord answers, I am he. I so appreciate the integrity of the King James translators. For you see, when they came to the inability to translate outright word for word, they would let us know when they were placing a word in there by placing that word in italics. You examine the scriptures when Jesus said, I am he, you'll notice that the he is in italics, meaning that he literally said, I am. They were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus gave them full disclosure who he was. More than the carpenter, more than the carpenter's son, not just the shepherd. Oh no, he says, I am. Are you sure that's what he was saying? Absolutely. That's why they fell down. Some 600 to 900 to 1,200 men fell down when Jesus told them, I am. Liberals have said, well, what happened was Jesus frightened the front line. And the front line jumped back and knocked over the second line. And the second line knocked over the third line. And they dominoed. These were soldiers. These were not a bunch of stooges. This was more than a man. This was more than a carpenter. This was more than a shepherd. So Jesus allowed them to stand back up. I submit to you, this is one reason I believe that Simon Peter, who we understand, was not a brave man by nature. That's why he denied the Lord three times. But the reason he pulled out a sword was, I believe Simon Peter thought, hey, if they give us any trouble, all Jesus has to do is give them another I am, and they're down. So he pulls out a sword. He was as good a swordsman as he was a fisherman at times. He wasn't aiming for his ear. I think he was aiming dead center head, and the guy ducked, and Peter got an ear. And I can see that guard squalling like a dying calf in a hailstorm, and Jesus picks up the ear and says, hey, get over it, and puts it on. Thank you. And then he says to Simon Peter, put up your sword. Remember, they that take the sword shall perish, but the sword put it up. I don't need that. You're of no help to me. And then he told him, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legion of angels. Do you understand what he was saying when he said that? See, 12 legion, the bottom figure, is 72,000. Top figure, 144,000. Peter, listen, if I wanted to, right now, there's no less than 72,000 war angels of heaven pulling flaming swords out of scarlet sheaths ready to come down here and deliver me right now. You see, in the Old Testament, one angel, Ono, took out 165,000 Assyrian soldiers. That's one angel, 165,000 soldiers. Can you imagine what 72,000 really been out of shape angels could do? So Jesus said, this is what I could do. I could call them right now. In a great Passover psalm, the 118th psalm, it says... This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, when we quote that, we often, and maybe you, you remember growing up every day for vacation Bible school, good morning, kids. This is Monday, the day the Lord hath made. We know that we rejoice and be glad in it. Tuesday, this is the day the Lord hath made. We're to rejoice and be glad in it. Or every Sunday, good morning, people of God that great stained glass voice. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We rejoice and be glad in it. You know, and, so we, and, I, and, and in a sense, every day is the Lord's day that he makes. If the Lord withheld the gravity that holds us upon this earth, if he takes away the centrifugal force from centrifugating, the gravity from gravitating, we're, we die. 
If he takes away the admixture of the air that we breathe, we die. If he takes away the sun, we die. So in a sense, every day is the day the Lord makes, but not in the scriptural sense. The 118th Psalm was sung every year at the Passover. This is the day which the Lord hath made. And then right after that, it said, bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. Did you know if you draw a line from the horns of the altar, it's in the perfect shape of a cross? Do you realize in the first Passover, they put the blood on the post and the lintel, remember? The sides and the top. So on every door before the children of Israel came out of Egypt, there was a dripping bloody cross on every door. You see, the day which the Lord hath made was not the day of each Passover because they had to keep having lamb after lamb after lamb, 275,000 on the last Passover. And all these lambs and all these Passovers were looking at the Passover, the atonement. And to understand what atonement means is just break out down the word at one moment. Everything is pointing to this one moment in history, to this one Passover. Our Lord did not die a martyr's death, but he died like a king that marched through the barrels of victory. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? I could call 12 legion of angels, but I'm here for this purpose. For this reason came I into the world. Put up your sword, Peter. It's a mixture of the divine sovereignty of God and yet the depraved sinfulness of man. Man doing what he does at his worst and God now doing what he does at his best, so loving the world to give his only begotten son. Mm. And so they led him away. The prayer before the cross. Very important to remember this as we go to the pain that was endured at the cross. And when we're talking about pain, we're not talking about just getting up on the top of Golgotha right now. We're talking about when they met with the Sanhedrin, illegal as it was. There were no less than 14 illegalities in both the civil and ecclesiastical trials of Jesus. You see, you have to break the law to get an innocent man crucified. By the way, no less than three times Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in him. At one time, Pilate said, I find no, no fault in him at all. He could have searched for millenniums and never would have found one fault in Jesus. Which of you convinced me of sin? No one could convince of sin. You had to get people to lie or to twist, to take the innocent lamb of God tipped at that cross, laws had to be broken. So the Sanhedrin court met at night illegally, accusing him, questioning him, then finally beating him with the open palms of their hands, striking him again and again. No less than 40 different men hitting him, hitting him in the face. No wonder. The Bible says in Isaiah 52, 14, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred, meaning C.I. Schofield had it right when he said his visage was so marred, he did not even look human. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. How crude, how rude that man whom he made, he allows to do this to him. 
Well, the Sanhedrin takes him to Pontius Pilate. Pilate's wife was very, very concerned. She says, have thou nothing to do with this just man. I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Pilate wants to get rid of this. He doesn't want Jesus in his court. He doesn't want to deal with this. His future is already on shaky ground with Caesar. He's very nervous about this whole thing. Aha! Well, he's from Herod's district. Okay, we'll send him over there. And Herod, that wicked, wicked fox, that mean monster of a man, has heard of the miracles of Jesus and he wants a carnival act and wants Jesus to do a miracle. And while Jesus was before Herod, he never said a word. He's led as a lamb to the slaughter and sheep before his shear is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. It's interesting to note that people that have worked in slaughterhouses, I had an uncle that did this once and they said they had to keep rotating them if they were doing the slaying of the lambs. When you kill a bull or a cow, they sense death coming and they will buck and back up. When you stick a pig, they'll run around where they've been stuck and they will fight death like crazy. But the lambs, they're very different. They've even been known to walk right up to the man who has the knife in his hand that was going to cut the throat and the little lambs have even licked the hand just before it was cut. As a lamb to the slaughter, no fighting it. No backing up, no buying to get away from it. He says nothing to Herod. By the way, the Lord never proves his godness by working miracles for our entertainment. This is one reason why God in this dispensation is asking us to believe him by faith, and he doesn't give you evidence and substance that you can see and tangibly touch and tactile feel. Believe me, he says. The complete canon of Scripture is written. Believe me, what I've said, what I've done. Pilate, or rather now Herod, now sends Jesus back to Pilate. Now Pilate is greatly concerned. His wife has warned him. It was really mercenaries that did this. They were the ones assigned to do this beating. And when they were given the assignment to torture a criminal before death, it was customary that these mercenary soldiers, not the norm and standard Roman centurion or footman, these men would play top that whenever they were assigned it. They loved it gleefully. They were torturesome typing type of people. Leading psychologists have said there is a certain temperament in some men that honestly love to hurt people. By the way, I want to say this. When one comes to Christ, even the temperament can change. Hallelujah. But these men have no governor no mercy barometer that will limit the pain they're willing to inflict. And these are the men that Jesus has turned over to the whipping post. Dr. Alfred Edersheim said there were two pieces of leather or chain that extended down from the ceiling beyond the praetorium and then the wrists were tied and then the body was stretched until the toes just barely touched the ground or until they dangled off the ground. And that was for a specific purpose as well. Then one would take the cattle nine tails. One scholar I read after said there could have been up to a hundred leather thongs. They many times did not stop with just nine leather thongs. They sometimes would have a massive whip with a hundred leather thongs. At the, end, at the end of every leather thong was a sharp piece of bone, metal, or glass. I believe in the case of Jesus, it was sharp bone. On the end of each leather thong was a sharp piece of bone in the leather, secured very tightly, so that when the armed guard, when the mercenary pulls it back and throws it into the body of the victim, 
the centrifugal force grabs the leather and allows those pieces of bone to fall into the flesh of the victim as easy as a pebble would fall into the pod. Then when he, with his massive strong arm, pulls the whip back because of the embedded bone, it causes not only a tearing of the flesh, but a ripping of the flesh because of the stretch position of the body. Now it tears and rips. So that according to Roman history, it was not unusual at all for a man to be ripped right in half at the whipping post. Now, Brother Pope, are you sure that's the kind of beating Jesus got? No doubt. Psalm 22 I, remember they pierce my hands and my feet. That never happened to David. That was a thousand year beforehand prophecy of Jesus speaking first person through the prophet David. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. That was not hyperbole. That was not metaphorically. The Flesh was torn from his rib cage and spinal column and hung with ribbons down to his knees as his rib cage looked like ivory bones coming out of bowls of blood. There's not a passion play, there's not a movie that can be made that will really show the horrendous horribleness of the pain that Jesus endured even as he approached the cross. They've already ripped the hair right out of his face. Now very fashionable for some men to wear beards. Can you imagine, sir, what it would be like to have the hair grabbed hold of by these strong mercenaries and not cut but yanked by the roots, causing great gaping gashes and tears in your flesh? They put this purple scarlet robe about him and it absorbs the blood like a sponge. He's bleeding so profusely. They take a crown made of thorns. Not like thorns you'd be used to here in the east, but more like West Texas or Arizona thorns. And I've seen these kind of thorns in Israel, some six to nine inches in length nearly as tough as a tin-penny nail and sharp as a needle on the end. And they didn't shove it down in his head lest they tear their own little lily-white hands to pieces. They put this reed in his hand, and if your picture is a little bamboo rod, you have missed it. It's more like a small baseball bat they've placed into his hand. So they've crowned him with the thorns, but they've not pushed it down on his head. They've placed the reed in his hand, small baseball bat, purple scarlet robe that now has soaked up the blood from the beating, and they bowed the knee, mocking him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Remember Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, thou said. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He told him if I wanted to, I could call, I could call my army, but that's not why I'm here. He's here to go through exactly this. Hell, king of the Jews! And then somebody comes and they take that bat, that reed out of his hand. And the Bible says they smote him on the head. You know what they were doing? They were driving the crown of thorns into his scalp so deeply that it scraped his skull until great bubbles of blood fall across his forehead and down the scab regions of his face. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred. 700 years before he died, Isaiah said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. <laughs> he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. We heard it sung tonight so beautifully. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?
now it's time. They lead him up the Via Della Rosa, which means the way of the pain. This heavy cross is upon his person. His back now already looking like raw hamburger meat. He falls beneath a load. He's already lost so much blood. And now they compel one Simon of Cyrene to bear the cross. Spurgeon said, you know, it says that Simon of Cyrene bore the cross, but it doesn't mean that Jesus ever let go of the cross. He said he was still on the other end of it. And Spurgeon made the application. Now, when the Lord tells you to take up your cross and follow him, he's always at the other end. That's why he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so up, 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 the Via Della Rosa. The daughters of Jerusalem are weeping and crying. And Jesus says, don't weep for me, but for yourselves. He hasn't lost control. Amazing, isn't it? He's still in full control. And he's up, going up, going up, going up the way of the pain until finally he gets to the top of the hill. Now some have disagreement on how the crucifixion actually took place. The vertical beam already in the ground and he was nailed to the horizontal and it's raised to it. I, I believe that he was nailed to the full cross while it was still on the ground because the Bible talks about the bones out of joint and so on. And so I can see the Lord as he is not wrestling, but he lays down and then stretches his hand out. It seems I can imagine one Roman saying to the other, you know, he's different from the others, isn't he? All the others are, are fighting us, but he's just laying his life down. Greater love hath no man than this, and that a man lay down his life for his friends. Again, Edersheim seems to think that they drove the nail not through the center of the palm, for it would have ripped through the phalanges, but it was actually in the, near the wrist area, so that it would hang upon the bone right there. For the forearm was still considered part of the hand. Now, I'll not be specific whether it was nailed in the center, secured with ropes, or hung freely on that one nail alone and one nail over here. Uh, I think when I get to heaven, I'll just kiss that nail print and thank him for it and not be so specific about exactly where it was. But I see him as he stretches his hand out there. They take that more looking like a spike and place it upon his hand, and that strong arm Roman throws his sledgehammer type instrument over his head and then wham he hits it it's not tempered still so it's not the ringing across the hillside but the sickening thud of one mallet against another piece of hard metal and that hand is nailed and then finally bruised with the last hit and the other hand is stretched out and they nail the other hand until finally the bruising against the hand takes place then one foot is stretched out upon the other then they drive the nail through the top foot on into the second foot until finally the great bruising takes place on the top of the foot he was bruised for our iniquities he was pierced for us if man's number is six and which was customary for six men to lift up the cross we see man lifting symbolically the cross into the air man Lifting the cross. Seven sayings, six men. Man lifting the cross so the perfect one can take our place. I hear one of the men holler, let it drop, boom, with a sickening thug, and you hear the bones popping out of joint, and now our Lord is hanging there, suspended between heaven and earth. One liberal said, you blood in the bowl Baptists that preach and sing about the blood on the cross, why don't you know the blood coagulated on the cross? By the way, it did not coagulate on the cross. For the Lord, in order to breathe, and he had to breathe to speak, that meant he had to keep grinding the hands and grinding the feet. Every time he spoke, the blood kept pouring down his arms, down his side, down his feet, like another river of blood coming down. And though it wasn't coagulating. And there he stands on that cross, nailed, hanging between heaven and earth, taking as it were the sinless hand of God and the sinful hand of men and bringing us together at this point, that this day which the Lord hath made. And he speaks. Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And that is in such a Greek tense that he kept saying that. It appears that perhaps when they spit upon him, he was saying that. When they mocked him, he was saying it. When he hung there, when they nailed him, he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The justice of God and yet the mercy of God. A bruised reed will he not break, nor a smoking flax will he quench. The mercy of God. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing the Holy Ghost. It's his mercy. Micah 7 says, He delighteth in mercy. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. at Calvary, it's been said that grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Son, behold thy mother. Mother, behold thy uh, woman. Behold thy son. The thieves are on the cross going back and forth. Finally, one of them wises up. Lord, remember me when thou enterest in thy kingdom. And Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Isn't it great to know that when a person dies who has relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't go into a soul sleep. That very moment they die, they go to be with the Lord. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And again, some differences of opinion about the chronological sequence, about when and what happens next. But I can hear our Lord finally from that cross saying, I thirst. Now, interesting, I remember in college we were talking about how to understand the Bible. Law of the first mention, when was something mentioned? The law of the next mention, the law of the last mention. And you look at the way that God mentions things and when he mentions them. You see, the last time anything was said about drinking was back in the garden when he said, let this cup pass from me. And then finally he says, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And now he says, I thirst. Why? The Bible says to fulfill all prophecy. And of course he was thirsty. But why does the Bible record it at the cross? Why does he say, I thirst? I believe I can see something. I want you to see it too. That what he is saying, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now he's saying, Father, give it to me. I've accepted it. I will now take the cup. What is the cup? He never tried to get out of the cross. He came to die on the cross. What is the cup? 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 explains to us what the cup was. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, that's the Father, hath made him, Christ the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I believe there was a dialogue going on in the Garden of Gethsemane that might have gone something like this. My Father, I'm prepared now. And you're prepared to die on the cross. I'm prepared, Father. There's something you need to know, and that is, Father, that you must die for their sin. I'm prepared for that. Something much more, Son. And Father, yes, you must become sin. Oh, my Father. More painful than a whip. More painful than the thorns more painful than the nails. It's my sin and your sin. He who lay on the bosom of the Father and enjoyed this warm, cordial fellowship of the Holy Trinity now must be separated from Almighty Father if he takes our sin, 
Habakkuk 3, 17, I believe it is. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. I thirst! Angels, give them the cup. And the cup of the sin of all mankind. You see, he didn't just die for Johnny Pope's sin. He became Johnny Pope. He became you. He became me. The Father allowed all the pain and punishment of hell past to hell future, which is infinite, to be compressed upon the body of Jesus Christ at this moment. I thirst and it's given to him and then the sky is blackened and in this moment he says, Eli, Eli, Laba Sabachthani. And that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What happened? He says, my God. First to the Holy Ghost. Remember on the day that he was baptized, the spirit of the living God came upon him in the form of a heavenly dove and doves are so easily spooked. Quench not the spirit, grieve not the spirit, right? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much sin to quench the spirit of God. Can you imagine what happened when all of my sin and all of your sin and the sin in the whole world were, was poured upon Jesus as he drained the cup? The spirit of the Lord has to say, I have to leave. And the spirit of God who ascended upon him at John's baptism now, or rather descended upon now ascends up and Christ in this great pain holding my sin and your sin says to the Holy Spirit, my God! And then I can imagine those 72,000 war angels of heaven are pulling flaming swords out and the Father says, resheath your swords, angels. But Father, resheath your sword and turn about. And if ever angels had wings and tears, they fold their wings and weep as they turn about. And then the Father himself turns about and Christ says the second time, my God! To the Father, who now turns his back on his only begotten Son, God forsaken of God. God forsaken of God. What a conundrum. You can't do the math. We can't understand it. It's bigger than our little peanut-sized brain to comprehend. How does this happen? And how does he take all of my hell and your hell upon that cross? How does that happen? I don't know, but it, it happened because God so loved you. And me. And then the darkness is coming close to the end and Jesus cries up from that cross. It is finished! It's actually one word in the Greek language. Although no one knows exactly how the Koine Greek was spoken, it was a kind of a melody to it that they don't exactly use in classical Greek. But to the best of our ability, it was a word like this. This was the word. Whether it was pronounced like this or not, we don't know. Detalistai! One word in Greek. It was the same word used whenever the lamb would be examined by the priest for the Passover. If there was no flaw or blemish, the priest would say, tetelestai, fit for the Passover, no flaws. It was the same word used whenever a man was in debtor's prison and he could not pay his debt. And his debt is finally paid by a benefactor, usually a loved one. And when that was paid, one stamp would come down on the handwriting of ordinances that was against him. Tetelestai, paid in full and the door would be open. It was the same word used by the Cyclops and the runner. They didn't have internet. They didn't have even Pony Express. But when the Cyclops were in battle, they were like our Green Beret, the Marine Recon, Delta Force, uh, uh, Navy SEALs. When they were in battle, their job was so dangerous that there'd be a runner near the edge of the battle. And if the Cyclops overwhelmed the enemy in such a wonderful way that the enemy could not rise up again, if it was an overwhelming victory, they would give one word to the runner. And he would run back sometimes 26 miles back to the edge of Athens with one word and there on the edge of Athens would be sweethearts and wives and, and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and friends 
who'd be waiting on pins and needles. And if it was an overwhelming victory that the enemy could not rise up again, this representative of the Cyclops would throw up both hands and cry out, Titelistai, which means overwhelming victory. And the enemy will not rise up again. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he said, Titelistai, I am the Passover lamb, no flaw, no blemish, acceptance. I've paid your way out of hell. I've paid for your sins in full. I've given the devil a blow. He'll never get over. He'll never recover from what is done here. And when Christ said, it is finished on that cross, I have been on Gordon's Calvary. And you can easily see in the day that they lived in without the traffic that you could easily hear, and I believe they did, in the gates or the courts of the temple. You literally could hear Christ's voice, it is finished, as they were officiating on the very day of the Passover. And at that moment, they hear the voice of Jesus in the temple, it is finished. And the veil that was six to nine inches in length, thickness, from the top to the bottom, it is torn. And the Holy of Holies is revealed and no one dies. Because now it's no longer necessary. Now the literal Holy Holies of heaven is now the focal point of the mercy of God. And now whosoever will may come and take of that water of life freely. The veil is torn from the top to the bottom. Oh, the mourning that must have been going on among the priests that day when they hear the voice of Jesus cry, it is finished, and they see the veil torn from top to bottom. Let me tell you, that's why in the book of Acts, you'll see that the Bible says that many priests believed. You want to know why many priests believed? Because he died exactly calculating on Daniel's 69th week when Christ would die and not for himself when the Messiah would come and he would die not for himself but for the peoples and so in that wonderful moment they did the math he died at Daniel's exact 69th week when the prince of peace when the king of kings would die and they saw the veil rent they knew that this was Yeshua HaMashiach that's why many priests believed oh yes we know even then there's a veil that's over those priests who don't believe or the Jews that don't believe. But when the veil's removed, oh, they understand who Jesus is and who he was and why he came. And then the final word from the cross, Father, in thy hands, I commend my spirit. He's committing, he's commending his spirit. The pain that was endured to the cross now launches is into the power beyond the cross as he releases his spirit to the Father. Now again, I know there's some disagreement. Some believe that Jesus literally went into torments after this. I don't buy into that, otherwise he would have never said, it is finished. No, he did preach to those because paradise at that time was not too terribly far from Gehenna. So he comes and he tells David and Abraham, we're going to move out in just a little bit. Give me three days. And he tells the people in hell why he had come and that they missed it and why they missed it. But anyway, but it, be that as it may, I literally believe what happened was what the Bible says happened. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter and verse 14, he offered himself without spot to God through the eternal spirit. He's committing his spirit unto the Father. What happens at that moment? Now, I know he's telling Mary, don't touch me, I'm not yet ascended to my Father. And he had not in the flesh. But in the spirit, that's another. He offered himself without spot to God through the eternal spirit. Hebrews 9, 14, Father, in other hands, I commit my spirit. Now, watch this. If you look at the chronological sequence of the Messianic Psalms, Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as we said earlier, they pierce my hands and my feet. He's delivered. He's right there in the midst of the Gentiles. Crucifixion, Psalm 22. Psalm 23, darkness on the cross. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 24, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of our great king? Who shall ascend to the Lord? Heal of the Lord. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. 
So what do you believe happened? This is what I believe happened. Through the eternal spirit, up, 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 up. Jesus goes up as the lamb, but also as the priest. He comes to the gates of glory and says, open up your gates and be lifted up your everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. I think Gabriel says to Michael, who is the king of glory? And Jesus hollers back, the Lord's strong and mighty. Open up your gates and be you lifted up your everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Mike, yeah, Gabe, that's him. Open up. And the angels begin to lift up their cherubim wings and the carved cherubims that point that, remember, the carved cherubim, the wings go up and the cherubim face one another where? Over the mercy seat. A picture that God faces man where? Over the blood. And they, the literal cherubim of heaven lift up their wings as Jesus through the eternal spirit comes into the very throne room of the Father. And the Father now turns back around. By the way, that's what would happen in the covenant. Remember Genesis 15? When the animals were killed, remember? And, and Abraham could not walk it, and so the smoking furnace and the, and the lamp went through the cut pieces, remember? By the way, here's what they did. That's the symbol for eternity. That's what happened in Genesis 15. God's a covenant-keeping God, and when you walk the covenant, you come face to face. Abraham couldn't do it because no man can take care of his own sins. Only God could do it. So Jesus walked the covenant with his Father, and then you come back around, and you face one another after you've been scarred for the covenant. And when Jesus comes into the throne room and then the father turns back around I believe Jesus in essence says father this is my blood for their sins you think all that blood just stayed down there on the rocks of Calvary I believe that Jesus took his own blood and literally placed his blood on the mercy seat in heaven this is my blood for their sins what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of Jesus oh precious is that flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we walk in the light, that's verse 9. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. It's power in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He died. And he was buried. Now, years ago, I imagined this little analogy. I was borrowing from John Milton's Paradise Lost and from old camp meeting preachers, but if I can borrow your imagination for a moment, I see the demon of death guarding the grave of Jesus. As the demon of death is guarding the grave of Jesus, the sickening, slimy serpent, that dragon, that devil, comes up and says, Death, do you have him? And I imagine death says to the devil, I've got him like I've got David and saw corruption. And the devil says, speaking of corruption, where is the demon corruption? Sir, where's corruption? Well, he'll show up. We worked hand in glove, you know. Yes, I know, but why isn't he here? Well, well I'm not sure. But, 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 but I'm sure, 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 sure corruption will show up any time now. And the devil walks away and the demon death says, corruption, where are you? Hurry up and get here. The morning, the second day, Slewfoot Satan slurks by and says, Death! Yes, your satanic majesty. Do you have him? Oh, I've got him. He's not getting away from me. Didn't I get that Baptist preacher? I've got him. Ha-ha! Well, where's corruption? Corruption? Oh, you haven't seen him out there? Where is he? Well, I don't know. You know, we work together. Yes, where is he? Well, he hasn't showed up yet, but I'm sure he'll show up. Devil walks away. Corruption, where are you? Hurry up and get here. Remember the Bible, Bible prophesied, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The morning of the third day before the devil get very close, I can imagine death throws his hands to his face and says, look out, look out. I can't hold him. I can't hold him any longer. And up from the grave he arose. A mighty triumph for his foe. Hallelujah, Christ arose. And the devil says, oh, I've got to do this myself now. And he races to the tomb. One talent on that side of the tomb. Another towel on this side of the tomb and says, where are you going? And Jesus says, out of here. I won't let you. And Jesus says, I don't need your permission. And the devil remembers Genesis 3 as Jesus raises up his foot and the devil says, put your foot off my face. 
Jesus said, I will, but you've got something that belongs to me. And he reaches down and takes the keys of death, hell, and the grave and takes them from that old serpent, the devil, and he runs away with them and says, Abraham, David, it's time to go. It's time to lead captivity captive. And he is risen and is alive forevermore. Hallelujah. Go to the tomb in Mecca and you see them crawling on their hands and their feet around the bones of Muhammad. Oh yeah, Buddha died and was buried. All of those false religions have dead representatives. But I've been to the tomb. I saw where they lay Jesus. And guess what I saw? Nothing. He is risen. This is the gospel. And sitting down, they watched him there. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we 